Welcome back, y'all, and thank you for tuning into the season premiere of season nine of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most high-profile homicide cases occurring in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. I missed y'all. It's been a minute. I'm not even going to lie. It's been about six weeks. And I cannot believe that we are in season nine of this podcast. And I really, I ain't even going to lie, I still have not scratched the surface of all the different types of categories of or variations of the different types of homicides that we have in this beautiful state of Maryland. In prior seasons, we have focused on relationship or husband-wife, boyfriend type of homicides. Um, I focused on weird, unexplained, or sex-related type of homicides. We've even profiled teen murderers where their cases have received national or local notoriety. So what do y'all think will be the focus for this season? Season 9. Revenge. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, say the Lord. That's the scripture, Roman 12, 19 through 20, 21, or Deuteronomy 32, 35, whatever Bible you have. But they say that revenge is a dish served cold, and these next 10 cases of revenge murders did not fail to deliver just that. These next 10 cases of revenge homicides occurring in Maryland had a clear case of revenge or vengeance or basically I'm going to pay you back for whatever I felt that you did to me or something that I felt like you deserve for doing something to me or for something to the murderer. Some people just cannot let shit go and they would rather happily spend the rest of their lives in prison than to just let shit go and move on. And these next 10 cases for season 9, that is what the focus will be. And this first case of revenge homicide that I'm going to profile is tragic. And it is the brutal murder of 42-year-old Bryant Jones. And because we're in season 9, don't y'all think that all of a sudden I'm going to switch stuff up and not dedicate a portion of this podcast to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because it's now considered a cold case. In every single episode of this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides that may or may not have received a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, this podcast also has a goal in assisting or helping in any unsolved homicide that needs to be solved. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the bold and brazen shooting murder of 44-year-old Betty Jennifer. Now, to get into this next case that I'm going to talk about, just imagine you're a 16-year-old girl and you're lucky enough to have both your mother and your father in your life. You're being raised by both your parents in this day and age. That's kind of rare. But imagine your parents planning you a special 
sweet 16 birthday party with all your friends and it's open to the public as long as you know they pay a one dollar admission fee if you're 16 this party is going to be important to you it's a milestone it's you know where you can get your license it's an event that you would want to remember for the rest of your life your sweet 16 birthday party but instead of fun and sweet memories of dancing and partying and giggling and music and all that little silly stuff that teenagers do this particular 16 year old girl will always remember that day as the day her father was murdered house parties especially basement house parties they used to be real popular in the shit back in the day i'm not even gonna lie i mean i'm kind of up there but back in the day people didn't always rent out rec halls or banquet halls or bars or clubs to celebrate their birthday or whatever event that they was trying to celebrate for the most part most people just had an event or they had birthday parties with friends and family at their home and on april the 14th 2006 at a row home in the 1000 block of north augusta avenue in southwest baltimore city the parents of one 16 year old girl they planned to do the same thing they put the word out in the neighborhood um, that there was going to be a party. They opened up their house and they invited all of their friends, neighbors, and relatives to come to the party. The parents did charge a $1 admission fee to the party for the birthday girl. And of course, they laid down some ground rules. Uh, the mandatory ground rules of the house party were no cursing or foul language, no smoking, no drinking, no fighting. And because this house party was in Baltimore City, no guns. It's a shame that you have to lay down all these types of rules, which should have been pretty much common sense or self-explanatory. But as I stated in Be More, you actually have to point all this stuff out. You gotta, you gotta spell it out for people because if not, they're gonna break these rules. Anyway, the party starts around 8.30, 9 o'clock p.m., which is normal for a house party. That's another thing. House parties start late. They don't start like 4 or 5 o'clock. They start late because people be partying all during the night. So it's about 20 kids in the basement. They partying. They dancing to the rowdy music that, you know, kids listen to or whatever. And even more people, it's even more people upstairs partying. The guest of honor was partying while her cousin was at the front door collecting the $1 fee for people who were still coming in. But not everybody had to pay a dollar. It wasn't like they stopped you at the door and it was like, boom, where's your dollar, whatever. Sometimes they gave, you know, it was a courtesy giving out to people who didn't have the money. And she gave certain people a break if you didn't have a dollar or whatever. You still got lit in. And certain people just still managed to get into this house party without paying a dollar or whatever. 16-year-old Jamal Charles and his 17-year-old friend, they made it to this party and into the basement of the home. Both of these dudes were drunk, they reeked of alcohol, and they came in the door rowdy, already starting shit. Jamal and his friend are in the basement, they partying up, they dancing all wild, 
you know, they're drunk, they're crazy, probably high, smelling like alcohol, weed, whatever, bumping all into each other, other people. When Jamal asked the girl who was at the party to dance and she was like, no, they started arguing and the birthday girl's parents came downstairs in the basement to try to get everything back together, try to get people to calm down, to restore order, let everybody know the rules again, you know, no fighting, no arguing, no rowdiness, this is a regular party. And one of the rules that the birthday girl's father said right off the bat he was like, if there's anybody in this house carrying a gun, then they got to leave. And they got to leave like now. So Jamal was acting like he was going to leave. You know, basically, in so many words, insinuating or letting people know that he was fully armed. But his friends, they told him to stop playing like that, you know, because they wanted to stay at a party. And plus, you know... They really didn't want to, you know, try to make it seem like that's why they were there. They just wanted to party. So Jamal stayed. But the rowdy, that childish, that unruly, that acting like you ain't got no home training, that out of control behavior, all that shit continued. After the birthday girl's parents went back downstairs in the basement. I mean, it went, when they went back upstairs, Jamal asked the girl, like, who was at the party to dance. The girl said no. And when she said no, Jamal grabbed her arm, making shit even worse again. So Jamal's friend, that one that came with him, he too was dancing all crazy, stepping on people's feet. And they started arguing about that. The rowdiness started all up again. So the birthday girl, she had had enough. And she went to her, her parents and she told her father, she was like, um, Jamal and his friends, they're out of control and I want them to leave. So... The birthday girls, um, the father, he went downstairs and he told his friends that since they couldn't act like they had some sense, then guess what? It's time that they had to leave. He said that he had warned them about disrespecting his daughter, disrespecting his wife, and disrespecting his house in general. So Jamal, along with about 11 of his friends, they went upstairs with the birthday girl's parents you know, for them to get ready to leave. Then Jamal and the other teenager that he came to the party with, they started saying that they wanted their dollar back since they weren't allowed in the party no more. Now, her parents, the birthday girl's parents, started debating whether or not Jamal had even paid a dollar in the first place. Because, mind you, I said, you know, they was kind of like not really monitoring who was paying the dollar or whatever. So... They started arguing about whether or not he even paid a dollar. Um, that led to a bigger argument breaking out. They was all in the front doorway of the house. They was arguing. The argument escalated when the dude who came to the party with Jamal, he handed Jamal a handgun and told him, fuck this, you know, show him how we do things in the hood or some shit like that. Some getaway shit like that. But anyway, Jamal took the gun. And then he shot the birthday girl's father three times. 42-year-old Bryant Jones was shot once in the head, once in the arm, and he had a graze wound to his chest. Bryant's wife of four years had already had a feeling that shit was about to go down, so she went in the house to call the police, and as soon as she did, she later testified in court that that's when she heard the gunshots. 
then she looked up and she saw Bryant lying on the floor and all of the kids were just running away from the scene like they always do. In court, Bryant's wife later testified that at first she thought that somebody had set off firecrackers, but this being Baltimore City, unfortunately, that wasn't no firecrackers. When 911 personnel arrived at the home, Bryant who was a devoted father of six, was rushed to Maryland Shock Trauma, where he later died. The family man and extraordinary electrician was married for four years and left behind six children and a wife to mourn. Both Jamal and his friend, who handed him the gun, were easily arrested a day after Bryant was murdered, literally just blocks away from the murder, not even really trying to be incognito. Not even really trying to be on the run. Probably playing that, oh, I'm a teenager and I'm young and I didn't know what I was doing and the gun just went off type deal. But anyway, both were charged as adults with murdering Bryant and both were held without bail. When they went to court, Jamal's lawyer insisted that because there were so many people at the party that it wasn't no real proof that Jamal was the actual shooter considering that the gun that was used in this murder was never found. Jamal's lawyer was like, you know, as many as 10 other people could have been the trigger man. Never mind the fact that a woman who was standing right next to Jamal, right next to Bryant when he was shot, testified that she saw Jamal pull the trigger. In the end, a Baltimore City jury took only four hours to convict Jamal and his friend of second-degree murder and use of a handgun in a commission of violence or in a crime of violence. Jamal's lawyer again said that Jamal Charles is the only name that they know. They wanted someone to pay for this. The attitude is if he didn't do it, he knows who did. Huh, he said that the jury got a very tainted, tainted group of witnesses. My client says that someone reached around him and fired. He didn't do it. Yeah, whatever. And lawyers, if y'all believe everything that your client tells y'all, mm, you really need to think about the profession that you chose to <laughs> waste your time on. Um, he also referenced, his Jamal's lawyer also referenced that because there was so many people there at the party that none of them could really identify Jamal none of his friends could identify Jamal as the shooter I'm like that's because they're not going to yeah anyway the judge was like this was one of the most senseless killings that we've seen in this city my stomach is twisted in knots with this case and the judge also referenced the fact that from now on the birthday girl will associate uh, her birthday as also the day her father was killed before Jamal was sentenced to 30 years in prison, he was allowed to make a statement himself and he said in his words, I'm sorry that a tragedy like this had to happen, but I can't change the jury's mind. It is what it is. Brian's wife, she also released a statement to the press after the verdict where she said, I'm happy we have some closure. It was all in God's hands. I prayed not only for my family, but for these two guys' families as well. Now, the reason why I chose this particular case as one of Maryland's most notorious 
revenge motive type of murders is because even though uh this was done this act of homicide was committed in what seconds and it it it, it shows right there the mentality of some of the youth in Baltimore City it took him seconds to come up with a motive to kill somebody that he didn't even know to shoot somebody that he didn't even know I'm, I'm mad because you're telling me to leave I'm mad because I can't get my dollar back no this was just somebody who wanted who had a gun who basically wanted to prove to everybody make it think like he was tough or they're not going to disrespect me like that and a kid, you know, they completely fucked up a girl's birthday over a dollar because you got kicked out of a party because you don't know how to act like you got some sense. And I'm sad to say this is normal behavior in Baltimore City for some kids. This is normal. It's, um, uh, it's, um, it's so normal. It's almost like expected for that uh, certain, that particular age group. You know, I, I, I hate to say that. And it's... The mentality is sometimes like, oh, well, kids are going to be kids. And, you know, but no, not in this case. Not if they can, if, if you have a teenager that can pull a trigger on a total stranger because he mad he got kicked out of a party, he should not be tried as a teenager. He's not a teenager no more. He want to be a man, let him be a man. You know, I, I just can't, I feel completely feel for the birthday girl in this case. I can't even imagine what she possibly goes through on her birthdays. Hopefully it's not a time for mourning or nothing like that. Hopefully her birthdays are spent not just celebrating her father, but also, you know, her life as well. Because this could have went a lot worse within, you know, just the death of a father. You know, these people could have shot up the house. They could have shot up, you know, anything in the house and bringing a gun to somebody else's house kids when I heard about this case I was just like wow I, I could not believe it I mean I really felt for the daughter that was involved and also everybody else that was there he sounded like he was a devoted family man and to lose your life over something as senseless as somebody won't give you your dollar back something tells me that even if he would have gave him the dollar back he still would have shot him you know, something just tells me about that. But, yeah, um, this will go down as one of Maryland's most notorious murders um, with a revenge motive attached to it. Moving right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And like I said earlier, just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast... Although a lot of attention and focus is placed on notorious homicide cases that may have received a lot of attention and a lot of press from the media, this podcast also shines a light on the many, many homicide cases that we see in the state of Maryland that do not receive a lot of attention or a lot of um, press or they're not featured on Murder, Inc. or nothing like that. These type of homicides are so common in Maryland that there's not a lot of time in this podcast to focus on just one. It's like sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report of it. 
and the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely staggering. Unbelievably, really. It's obvious that homicide detectives, they cannot do it all by themselves. You know, nobody's a magician. It's not like, you know, solving homicide cases is not like what you see on TV. It's not like first 48 when all of a sudden, boom, somebody's there, they're confessing, they're talking. At least not in Maryland, it's not like that. Homicide detectives, they are often overworked, they're underpaid, they're outnumbered, they're understressed, and they flat out, you know, sometimes they're beaten down all the time because of what they have to do. And what happens in cases where they don't have any evidence, where nobody is talking at all? What happens when there are absolutely no clues whatsoever? What happens to the cases where, you know, nobody is saying, oh, so-and-so did this, or there are no evidence, there's no evidence left behind? What happens when nobody is talking, there's no evidence, no clear motive, no clues, no nothing? Or what about cases where, because of the victim's past or their current lifestyle, where it seems like the detective's... It's just, you got a feeling that it seems like they ain't really trying to investigate the case because you get a sense or a feeling that the detectives, they're not really trying to investigate because the victim, quote unquote, had it coming. Or what about the homicide cases you have where, these these are my favorite, where you have the family or uh, friends of the victim that they know who did it. They know who did it. But they just can't prove it. And especially if there is, you know, unsolved homicides that have been simmering for a while. Because when time passes, then, you know, people get clearer heads and sometimes they start re, re uh, remembering things that they forgot. What about them cases like that when, like I said, it seems like the family, they know who did it. But they can't really prove it. There's no evidence. And they know the killer's just walking around free. What happens to these type of homicide cases? Are they are they just really just brushed under the rug? You know, do they, did the killer or killers simply just get away with murder? And because nobody ain't doing nothing about it? It just seems like nothing, literally nothing is done with these forgotten types of homicides. Not because nobody cares no more. But because the public simply forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new homicides. It's like we have almost become immune to homicides in this state. Well, guess what? On on this podcast, trust me, although a lot although I do talk a lot about cases where the murderer or killer did receive a lot of attention and a lot of notoriety, on the flip side a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the bizarre and brazen shooting murder of 44-year-old Betty Jennifer. For this particular case, let me just start out by saying, I've said this before, on one of my episodes on TV, I'll say it again. What you do in the dark will eventually come to the light, no matter how long it takes. In 1999, Betty married her first husband, 
who was a major cocaine drug dealer in the Baltimore DMV area. Together they built a life together. They had a set of twins, a boy and a girl, and they managed to rack up a life of wealth with all of the drug money for several years. The couple had hundreds of thousands of dollars. They had car collections that included a Ferrari and a Rolls Royce. They had four homes, four homes, all with drug money. The married couple, they had a yacht, they had several guns, they had um, an Italian ice stand that was used to launder, launder drug money, according to articles in Baltimore Sun. The couple lived the good life for a minute, and since uh, Betty had a bachelor's from Temple University in applied science and an MBA in business administrations from Walden University, in 2012, Betty created Express Employment Professionals Employment Agency in Greenbelt, which was a very, very successful employment agency that branched off to several franchises. In 2014, in 2014, all that shit came to a halt when Betty's husband, like they always do, got caught for dealing drugs. And in 2016, he got sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for running a major cocaine distribution operation. A year and nine months later, after Betty's husband got sentenced to 20 years in prison, Betty marries an actor who was from Ghana in West Virginia, West, West Virginia, in West Africa, who now lived in Los Angeles, California. Anywho, that was all well and good, except for one major problem. Betty was still legally married to her first husband, whom she never got a divorce from. Apparently, Betty must have kept all of this away from her new husband, but once Betty's drug dealing husband found out about Betty's new marriage to the African actor, six months after they were married, he officially filed divorce from his prison cell. From his prison cell, he was like, you know what, I want a divorce. And six days after Betty's first husband filed for divorce, Betty responded by filing for a divorce from him too. Betty's new husband, the African actor, I'm sure he felt betrayed. According to articles in People Magazine and in the Baltimore Sun, on May 5th, 2019, the actor deleted all of their pictures together, you know, with him and his wife. He deleted everything off of social media and set out a tweet that read, when it comes to relationships, Remaining faithful is never an option, but a priority. Loyalty is ever. Hmm. Then, on Friday, May 10th, 2019, two days before Mother's Day, a little after 5 p.m., Betty left her office at the employment agency that she owned in the 6300 block of Ivy Lane and Greenbelt, and she headed out to her car in the parking lot. As Betty walked to her car, suddenly, a man who was later described as a black male with black hair dressed in all black approached Betty in the parking lot, armed with a handgun. Betty saw the gun and tried to take off running, 
but the man chased her down and shot her twice in front of at least 10 people who saw the whole shooting. Immediately after shooting Betty, the killer fled away in a blue car. The police were called and when they arrived, Betty was pronounced dead on the scene. Betty had been married less than a year to her new husband before she was shot and killed in broad daylight in what was Greenbelt's first homicide of the year. After Betty was killed, a police spokesperson, spokesperson gave a statement to the press saying, Our investigators do not believe this was a random... Uh, they do not believe that this was random. It was very brazen. It happened in broad daylight in front of multiple witnesses, and that's very concerning. But we do not believe that this was a random act. Betty's actor husband cooperated fully with the detectives and their investigation and has been completely cleared as a suspect in Betty's murder. And as of right now, 2023, the police have no leads and no real suspects in this unsolved homicide and they need your help. So if you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this brazen unsolved homicide, please call the Greenbelt Police Department at 240-542-2134. Once again, that number is the Greenbelt Police Department at 240-542-2134. You can remain anonymous, people. But let me say something about this case real quick. Why is this unsolved? Come on now. Be real. I just... I Do some police work and figure out what's going on with this one. Because I don't understand why this one is still unsolved. It's just not necessarily obvious, but this should not be an unsolved homicide at this point. Let's be real. Hmm. That's all I'm going to say about that one. Thank you for tuning in this week. Before I go into my usual routine of how you can access prior episodes, let me mention that if you tuned into me at all last season, I did tell my listeners that I was producing a true crime documentary that was based off of my very first episode, the episode that profiled accused child killers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. And yes, yes, listeners, the documentary is now available. It is now currently available. It was supposed to be shown on Hulu, uh, Tubi, etc., and all the other channels, channel, channels, <laughs> channels. But because of the extreme. Because of the extreme graphic nature of this documentary involving the brutal and horrific beheading murders of three innocent kids, networks are scared of that. And the networks, they shot away from me and basically told me that the documentary was too graphic, too much for network TV, even with blurred images, you know, so... If they were grown-ups, maybe, but kids, they're like, no, they don't want to be sued and stuff like that. And I guess because the documentary does include the actual crime scene photos, which I refuse to uh, take out because that emphasized the importance of what of what happened, um, I'm going to have to release the documentary independently. 
So I refuse to pull these photos from the documentary because like I said, the brutal nature of this, the crime scene photos add to the emphasis of the innocence of Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa. In order for me to fully emphasize the fact that these two defendants did not commit this horrible homicide, I had to show what was done to these kids with no sugarcoating. And there's no way that the victim's uncle and cousin committed these murders that were extremely brutal. And if you watch the documentary, you'll see who I believe these murders were committed by. Either way, the documentary is available via email only. It's not for everybody's eyes. I must put a disclaimer out there and a warning. And this documentary was not produced to make money or to upload my podcast downloads or to get likes or anything like that. Which is why it's not available to the public like that. That's another reason why it's not available on, you know, the major networks. Why I chose not to go that route. Um, I can't and I will not be censored. Especially when it comes to true crime and facts and, and injustice that I believe is currently going on. So in order to see the documentary, please visit my website at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. And Marilyn is spelled MDS. Um, that's Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders.com. And you can subscribe to the mailing list by leaving your email address and send me a request that you want to see the documentary. And I will email it to you. I will email the video to you directly within 24 hours. I'll, you know, I have to basically protect the image of Savage Life Productions and not censor um, what I put out. I must warn you though, I really must warn you though, the video is very graphic. The documentary is very graphic and as I said, Hulu and Tubi and all those other major networks and even YouTube, they all told me no because of its graphic content. And also, because to be honest, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to put it out there. I can say what I want. This is my podcast. I truly believe that with the state of the world, the way that we are in now, nobody cares that these two illegal immigrants are locked up, serving life sentences for crimes that they did not commit. Nobody gives a fuck. I've, I've actually experienced that. I cannot believe what I'm actually seeing, but nobody cares. And that's why I produced a documentary to open up people's eyes and I refuse to be censored on that. So while you're at my website, hopefully requesting the documentary, while you're at it, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping, sadistic episodes. And for paid subscribers... Be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then boom, <laughs> there's a podcast. But nope, that's not even hardly the truth. There is a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem. And if you click on the episode, episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. 
And while you're on my website, which is again, Maryland's most notorious murders.com, be sure to check out any prior episodes that you may have missed with all of the different seasons that we have focused on, like suicide murders, uh, sick, twisted pedophile or sexual related types of homicides, or even parasite killings like the focus was for last season. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV1's Justice By Any Means, um, which profiled uh, my story. Um, You can check me out on TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Satroni and Jason DeLong. Or, if you're really bored, you can check out my latest article for The Crime Report, where I'm also discussing, again, what led me to developing a true crime podcast and what makes my podcast different from everybody else's. Last but not least, many of my listeners have been messaging me on how they could donate to this podcast. I don't do this for money. This is something I've always been into, a hobby of mine since I was, I would say, 12 in the area, the era of 21 Jump Street. Um, you know, not the movie, but the show. There used to be a show called 21 Jump Street for people that don't even remember that. But ever since I used to watch what they do in high school, I used to, I had a fascination with law enforcement. And I think with criminals and murderers in particular, I wanted to be a female version of Jodie Foster and what she was doing in Silence of the Lambs, you know, up and close and personal with Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) This was how I was at 12 years old. I kid you not. If you ask my friends and family, they'll tell you the same thing. I was weird like that even back then. So um, many of my my listeners, back to that topic, they've been asking me how they can donate to this podcast because they like it or whatever. So on my website, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, There is a donate um, icon on the website where you can contribute via PayPal, um, via Anchor, via something called uh, Kofi, or you can click on the icon that says buy me a coffee icon where you can contribute something like a dollar, something like that. Thanks so much for all of your support on that. Please, please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome Another high-profile homicide occurring in Maryland. It will be profiled. It will be examined. And it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. And once again, this has been a Savage Life production.